Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, writer Elspeth Sands joins Going West co-founder Murray Gray, exploring memoir and memory with her 2015 book, What Lies Beneath. I'm getting modelling fruits with a T-shirt. <laughs> Sales. Um, memoir. That, that strange, slightly distorted view of the past from a very personal point of view. Not an autobiography. Not footnoted and um, authoritated and the history of, but recollections of memory, a bit like mythology, snatches coming to it from the past. And by its very nature, memoirs are all about time and the past. And when I find my first quotation... Scott Fitzgerald, so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. So my first question to Elspeth really was, how did you go about writing a memoir after writing novels, plays and radio drama? (laughs) Writing a memoir, what did you do? Um, Very reluctantly, actually. There are plenty of people who've reminded me how often I've said I would never write a memoir, that um, I rather believe what Janet Malcolm said, which is that it's an exercise in self-forgiveness. Uh, So I didn't want to go down that track, but um, this memoir began as a novel. Um, I was imagining the parents I didn't have, the ones who gave birth to me, but um, I didn't know them. So that was fine. I could start off imagining their lives, but then I hit the real people and the real places um, where I lived as a child and the parents who brought me up. And I couldn't invent them. And that was a shocking experience for me as a fiction writer. I've spent my life inventing. In fact, um, I think one of the things about memoir, which you've kind of alluded to in your comments, is that it it isn't autobiography. So you allow yourself a certain leeway in reimagining. You reimagine the past. You don't invent it. It's not made up. But you reimagine it. So there's an element of invention. In fact, Morris... Shadbolt, for whom I, for whom, with whom I lived for many years, used to say that uh, he was going to write a memoir because he could tell lies. <laughs> um, so the what lies beneath perhaps has a, a, a double entendre. <laughs> um, but it, it, it suddenly hit a, a point where it couldn't be, uh, it couldn't be a novel. Um, I was brought up in a time and a place where characters were very strong. People were not homogenous at all. Um, My experience of the adult world as a child was that each person was mysterious and unique. And I think that's maybe something we've lost a bit, is that sense of of, um, powerful characters who influence the way you experience the world and the way you look at the world. But I I did have to get some help turning it into a memoir, and that's why there are the little epigrams at the top of each chapter, because I wanted to try and find the truth of people and places, not not my truth, but their, their truth. So um, it is, in a sense, a novel as well as a memoir. Well, Lisa Apaganese, is that no? Apaganasi. Anyway, history makes sense of memory. It is a grid for individual experience. And... I suspect that the text is actually the grid, the words on the page for experience. How did that affect that? Because this is from the very early on in the book, in chapter six. Mm. 
Well, we, we all live in unique times and places, and that was what I was trying... Um, Lisa's... Um, I know Lisa, and her quote came from... She, was, she wrote a, a wonderful memoir. She was one of the people who enabled me to write a memoir, because she's also a novelist, but her memoir is of her very... Um, colourful and fascinating background and very, very strong... The characters are very strongly influenced by history, by what's happening in the world. And although I grew up um, when dramatic things were not happening maybe within New Zealand, but there was a war on the Second World War, so um, well, I was conscious of it being a very particular time and place. And once you move beyond that time and place, it becomes even more extraordinary when you look back on it. The memoir is different because it's actually your story about recovering your birth parents, which was um, the end, the aim of it in the end. It became, let's work this out. And it was a detective story which covered the country, New Plymouth to Dunedin and back. Yes. Tell us about that, that process. Well, I, um, I suppose in some ways I've, I've tried to resist the fact that it's um, an adoption story because there are many and they're all unique and, and it's quite a common um, New Zealand experience, I think, particularly of people of, of my age. Um, a lot has happened since the book came out, which um, I would love to have a chance to write about, but I don't quite know how. Um, my publishers received a phone call from um, a woman who turns out to be my first cousin. She's my, my mother's niece. And I, I had already discovered my father's family and um, melded in with some quite successfully, really, particularly with my various first cousins, one of whom was going to be here today, but he couldn't, he couldn't manage it. Um, but I knew nothing really about my mother, so she was entirely uh, unknown in my head. And she'd been the person I'd been looking for because I was devoted to my adoptive father. I didn't want a substitute father, but I, I did want and need a substitute mother. Mm. Um, so I met this first cousin only a few weeks ago. I travelled up to Hastings. Um, it was an awkward, it was an awkward meeting, <laughs> I have to say. Um, and the, the mother that emerged from her portrait, she knew my mother very well. She had stayed with her a lot. Um, my mother married very happily, which I did know about, which made me very happy. But she had no other children. Um, and the portrait of her that emerged was not the portrait that I had perhaps quite imagined in my book. Um, she was a much stronger woman than I'd imagined. She was quite, um, according to the, her niece, my first cousin, she was quite, she could be quite stroppy. Um, she had high standards. You were expected to behave in a certain way. Um, the table was set in a certain way. And I hadn't, I hadn't imagined any of that at all. I'd somehow imagined somebody more wounded by her experience of having an illegitimate child at the, you know, in the 1940s. Um, so that that's something I'm still coming to terms with. Um, I mean, you think of the experience of the, uh, having a legitimate child at um, Iris had in the yeah. 20s and 30s, yeah. which yeah. was wounding yes. to an incredible extent. She died as mm. a result, mm. yes. I think my mother was very supported by her brother. She, she was the youngest of a family of 13, um, a big New Plymouth family that not... They weren't hard up. Um, all my romantic notions of, you know, kind of poor person being taken advantage of by the richer, my father's family were prosperous, um, didn't quite figure, you know, the, 
said, <laughs> in fact, before I knew anything at all, my, my com most common fantasy was that my mother was um, a ballet dancer, which was something I absolutely couldn't do but wanted to. And, and my father was um, a pilot killed, you know, defending Britain. <laughs> so, yeah. Compared to your adoptive parents, um, Ariel Kayaskura, your father, adoptive father, a wonderful, it seems, man who was just <laughs> waiting for a daughter, and a stepmother who wasn't too enthusiastic about it. <laughs> to put it mildly, no. <laughs> no. Tell us about that experience, because you lived in those wonderful grand Dunedin houses. Uh, yes, I think the, probably almost the most powerful influence on my life was the landscape, going, referring to our previous um, session, uh, the power of landscape and the power of freedom because I was brought up in a suburb called Anderson's Bay in Dunedin, which in the 1940s and 50s was, um, it was populated, but there were, I mean, our house was surrounded by four acres of paddocks. And so you had endless opportunity to, to create an alternative universe to the, to the mm. one you were living at home. And I think I'm sad that my grandchildren, for example, don't have that. You know, they're driven to school and then they're picked up after school. Whereas my brother and I wandered home after school, taking forever, you know, with our shoes in our school bags and... Um, as long as you were home in time for tea. As long as we were home in time for tea. Nobody cared where you were. Nobody thought you were in any kind of danger. So, um, and it's interesting that the, because you've got a session this afternoon about Morris's house where I lived for a number of years in Titarangi, um, the power of place in the writer's life, certainly in Morris's life, that house was, I would say, as important as any human relationship he had. Um, and although the house didn't work, as well for me, mm. um, I can only say that I had the same experience growing up that the um, very old Victorian house built by Anderson of Anderson's Bay, um, the, the second house I lived in, the first house I lived in was built by my great grandfather. Um, they were they were echoing places. They were full of echoes, so you could invent stories, and they would they would the stories would behave. They would belong in that in that landscape. In this, this, this chapter 14, the Truby King Harris Hospital session, um, chapter, time present and time past are both perhaps present and time future, and time future contained in the past, in time past, which is Eliot's mm -hmm. quote. Tell us about that, that, that idea. Oh, that's something I, I feel more and more strongly, actually, and I'm writing about at the moment in the book I'm writing at the moment, um, which is that time isn't linear. I know um, when Stephanie was talking last night, she was talking about l linear narratives, and I, I completely understand where that was coming from. But actually, my experience of time is, is that it's circular, and that something that happens um, will have an echo maybe 25 years later. You find it in the novels of Thomas Hardy, for example, where uh, an event 20 years later has its consequences. But it's not, just, it's not just the moral thing of, of all actions have reactions, have consequences. It's the thematic thing, that the things that matter in your life, the people who matter and the experiences that matter, tend to have other versions of them through your life. So I find it quite encouraging, particularly getting older, that we're going in a circle. We're not going like that to a, an inevitable... It's like the present has, uh, has um, infinite ripples. Yes, and I think that's what Elliot was writing mm. about yeah. there, that, that um, nothing is inconsequential, nothing is unimportant. Even the smallest action 
um, or the smallest thought or the smallest casual relationship may very well have an echo, or maybe echoes that you won't know about, but... Um, Life is more determined by chance than choice. Yes, yes. Mm. I'm, I'm not one of these, you know, you can choose to be a successful novelist. Mm. You can't. <laughs> yeah. so was one of the songwriters said, life's a game of cards, you're only a minor player. Yes, yes. Writing your, <laughs> writing your first book, when did you start writing? Um, out of frustration because I couldn't do what I wanted to do, which was act. So, like Stephanie, I was trained as an actor first, and that's what I wanted to do. I love theatre. Um, more and more, I just think theatre is wonderful, live theatre. Uh, it's that interaction between the audience. And, mm. um, and I, I used to feel more alive and more real on a stage than I did bumbling about in my, in my life. But I was married to, an, this was my second marriage in England, I was married to an actor, and I had two children, and um, theatre then in England was very peripatetic, there were lots of repertory theatres, so we would go and have six months in, in Nottingham, and then we would have six months in Newcastle, and then we'd be in Stratford, and um, you couldn't have two parents doing that, it just wasn't <laughs> going to work. And also acting, Acting was changed, the theatre, what was expected of actors was changing. It was at the point where actresses were asked to take their clothes off. Um, and occasionally, I actually think that's valid, but it was happening rather a lot. So I was quite, I was quite glad in a way to be able to keep my clothes on and, um, and, and stay at home with my kids. But um, I did have in, you know, excess energy to, to create, so I started writing. So the thing that really struck me in this book was your your memories of childhood, um, to the extent, and, and again, um, a, a quote, we look at the world once in childhood, the rest is memory. Mm. Um, could you expand on that a bit for us, please, Elspeth? Uh, I, guess, I guess what I think about childhood is not that that's the most real time in your life, but it's the time in your life when you look at people and at the world Without contamination, you're not contaminated by uh, by people's expectations of you. Um, at least I felt that as a child because we were on our own physically such a lot, my brother and I. Um, I think it's what I think it's when you understand things without the, the complication of politics and needing to earn your living and falling in love with the wrong people and um, your children not behaving and all of those complications that that um, smudge that original pure vision mm. that you have of life. I mean, Wordsworth writes about it, doesn't he? You know, we come trailing clouds of glory. It's something like that that we see life much more vividly when we're, when we're children. And I think writers go back... They say writers go, keep going back to their childhood, but not to write about their childhood. Yeah. It's to see the world yeah. that way. Because mm. I've always thought the best age to be a kid was 10 years. Yes. Being a 10-year-old. Yes. I love being just, a 10-year-old. Yes, yeah. yes. You still are, Murray, in many ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've discovered my inner child. <laughs> so how does, how does this process of memory affect what you write? Do you... Do you write something and check it against your memory or do you write it and check it against the facts? How much is a, is a memory? I think, um, you have to, I think you have to check all the facts. You can check. Memory's um, an emotional climate. It's an emotion, it is, yeah. indeed. In fact, I'm fascinated by what we forget. <laughs> that, that, it's, it seems to me that who we are 
is largely conditioned by what we forget and what we, re what we remember. And I have um, my closest friend in, when I was living in England was um, a daughter of Holocaust survivors. So we, we often talked about memory and how her parents coped with um, for things that they would rather forget. And this is a whole issue, isn't it, too, about child abuse and so on. You know, what do you remember? What do you forget? How does the brain, how does the, the mind protect you from things that are going to make it impossible for you to stay alive, you know. So uh, I'm fascinated by memory. Um, I, in the process of writing this book, because I started to relive in those places, I found I remembered things that I didn't know I'd remembered. And, and that's a nice experience when suddenly a, a character mm. will come up at you from the shadows and say, hey, do you remember that time you came and had tea with me and we talked about sex? <laughs> yes, I do. I remember now. <laughs> It's 25 past, nearly. But do you want to read? Um, Would you like to read something oh. from, from the... Oh, all right. Well, uh, well, we... I'll, uh, um, yeah, I'll read a little bit about um, a place, because I'm very... Since you've got, you're having these sessions this afternoon about, I mean, about Morris's house, so yeah. I'm not reading about Morris's house. <laughs> the um, Wanaka story is always a lovely story. Yes, yes. Do people here know Wanaka at all? Uh, I, I think of Wanaka as my... Um, Turanga Waiwai. We had all our childhood holidays there in just a little um, corrugated iron shack, you know, with a, 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 a dunny out the back. A and a, um, it's a crib. It would have been a crib. A crib. It was a crib. A crib. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But the, um, Wanaka now is an entirely different place from what it was then. Um, well, this is about memory, memory, remembering places. It's just a very brief. But, um, something strange happens to houses once they've lodged in the memory. Like Alice, when she ate the cake and grew six feet, they expand. For over two decades, I lived on the other side of the world. When I came back and went to visit my childhood home, not only was it lived in by strangers, it had shrunk. The house I remembered was a vast Victorian mansion with intersecting corridors, stained glass windows, and dark, seldom-used rooms with heavy velvet curtains and a smell I identified as the scent not just of things hidden away from the light, but of secrets. What I saw on that emotionally charged return visit was a modest-looking single-storey house, no longer sitting in splendid isolation among its many gardens, but crouched on top of an unremarkable hill, its view over inlet and harbour interrupted by the forest of houses that had sprung up in my absence. Where was my father's hunger-defying vegetable garden? Where the orchard and the transformed tennis court? What had happened to the paddocks and the cloud-tipping macrocarpa hedges? Where were the garages, sheds, glasshouses? The unpretentious slate-roofed house in front of me was a mirage, a copycat doll's house, not the real thing at all. Yet I only have to close my eyes to bring back that other Lauriston, to see myself running through the gaps in the hedges that separated one garden from another, flower beds closest to the house, then vegetables, then compost heaps and seed beds, or walking with my brother across the paddocks linking Lauriston with another Somerville house, Gladsmuir, home to my Uncle Jim and his family. At other times, I might be skipping down the steep rhododendron-lined path that led to the orchard, where the greatest secret of all, an overgrown air raid shelter, lay hidden under the spreading branches of an apple tree. It was there my brother and I would spend long summer afternoons hiding from the Germans, 
The Japanese, who posed a far more immediate threat, were for some reason considered less interesting. Checking our supplies of tin, food and water, dressing our imaginary wounds as we bravely repulsed the enemy and saved the nation. It worked. <laughs> and this is a brief thing to finish. Places belong to the people who love them, Margaret Atwood has claimed. Sir Lauriston, more than any other place I have lived in, belongs to me. Which doesn't mean it was a happy place, though intermittently it was. Rather, it was a place that seemed to contain everything, not just what I was to become, for better or worse, but a vision in microcosm of what life is. None of which, of course, was clear to me at the time. I didn't need Kierkegaard to tell me that we live life forwards, but understand it backwards. That had always seemed obvious to me, so I understand now why I sometimes wanted to run away from the place I loved so deeply. Thank you. Do we have any questions from the floor? The microphones are roaming. Hello, Elspeth. Hello. <laughs> I'd just like to know if you found it harder to write this book than any of your others. Absolutely, yes. yes. And uh, I went, I would write a little bit and then I'd go away and I was writing, um, working on a film script at the time I was writing it, so I'd go with great relief to that and then I'd come back and write another page it, no, it was like pulling teeth. <laughs> and did you find that, um, did you feel you had to wait for the right time to write it because of its very personal sort of nature? I, I think what, what frightened me was that it wrote its, it wasn't the actual writing. Once I sat down to do it, it wrote itself. It was, you know, people talk about automatic writing. It was almost like that. I hardly did any rewriting, but I never wanted to do it. I never wanted to go... Whereas I love writing, the other, other things I've written, I can't wait to get there. I wake up in the morning and think, oh boy, chapter three, I'm, you know, I'm off. Yeah. But I, not with this, no. I, I don't know why, I think it's probably because it's personal. And having written it, do you feel it's been a cathartic experience? Um, I'm not sure it's been a surprising experience. I, I, a, I didn't think it would be published, and, and, and B, I didn't think it would interest people very much you know no it's been surprising mm. rather than I think I'd worked out my own problems vis-a-vis -vis being adopted through other writing that I'd done fiction writing I mean fiction writers are people who basically have been given the wrong life so they invent another one <laughs> <laughs> no one else no, I would like to ask you all to join with me in thanking Elspeth in particular and Murray for taking to the stage and talking about her lovely book, What Lies Beneath. I think that everyone who reflects back on their lives will find something that resonates in this book and I think you've just captured that, Elspeth, for us. So thank you very much. Please join me. This has been an archival recording from the Going West Writers' Festival. Thanks for listening.